Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm so glad you chose to join us. Tonight, the topic is mindfulness, good medicine in confounding times, and our guest tonight is Gary Gock. We're going to bring Gary on in just a minute, but I I wanted to just take a moment and think about tools in our toolbox, the the notion of personal growth, the, the... the notion of evolution of self, if you will. Um, I find that when people are um, wanting uh, to be on a spiritual path, a a path to awakening, um, kind of uh, awaken their consciousness, they 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 want to get it done. They um, they're seekers. They they want that. the, the journey to be fulfilled, if you will. And when we talk about a spiritual journey, it's, uh, I find it's a very curious thing because um, heaven, heaven forbid um, the journey could end in this moment. In the heaven forbid that we could discover the bliss of this moment um, we have to seek it. it. It's somewhere else. It's farther down the road. It's a few pages farther down the calendar, or maybe a few calendars farther down the temporal timeline. But I think, because I've been noodling, I've um, the the focus of our show tonight is a book that Gary has written called Pause. Breathe, smile, pause, breathe, smile. And the subtitle is Awakening Mindfulness When Meditation is Not Enough. And the the reason I'm talking about the spiritual journey is I suggest to you that mindfulness, being mindful in this now and this one here and this next one, to be mindful is is really a powerful vehicle of awakening, of change, of awareness, and and I'm really um, actually I'm going to quit talking about it and get to our episode because I think Gary has so much to offer about this subject. Um, these days, it seems as if everything is calling itself mindful, but Gary will unpack for us what we talk about when we talk about mindfulness. Gary Gock has been meditating and writing for nearly 60 years and is just getting started. His work has been published in numerous magazines and anthologies, including Buddha Dharma, Harvard Divinity Bulletin, The Nation, The New Yorker, Technicians of the Sacred, Tricycle, and Yoga Journal. His Complete Idiot's Guide to Buddhism has has proven to be a bestseller, and more recently he published Pause, Breathe, Smile, Awakening Mindfulness When Meditation Is Not Enough. I'm delighted to bring Gary on the show, and I think this topic's a a beautiful topic. Gary, welcome to the show. Gosh, (laughs) more than glad to be here. Thank you. You've you've written a book about mindfulness. What... uh, what does mindfulness mean to you? 
Mm. <clears throat> well, I've uh, come up with a, a, a short answer to that very good question like this. Um, when I started out um, on this journey, uh, this and then this and then this, mindfulness was my point of reference. Let's see, how am I doing in relation to this prospect of living fully in the present moment without um, judgments, expectations, but just being here fully? And then as I got my toe wet and more familiar with the terrain, kind of like walking in the woods in the moonlight, I started to see that it was my point of view. It was no longer like my point of reference. It was, well, seeing things from this point of view became the journey, not yet without any destination in in terms of an ending, but that it went from point of reference to point of view. And now... um, you know, being, as you said, you know, kind of a, of an older generation and keeping my shoulder to this wheel, it's my life. I don't see it as any separate from <laughs> life itself, which I guess needs to be unpacked a little more. But that's how I see it in um, my very personal, vulnerable way. Does... Uh... Does vulnerability come along with mindfulness, or can oh, you... I don't know why I slipped slipped that in, but um, <laughs> I think it's um, I think it's as important, if not more important, than enlightenment. You know, people think that enlightenment is the end of the journey. Well, I don't know about that either, but. Um, rather than than looking at the journey as something in which we no longer have any uh, baggage and we're like angels you know in free flight um the recognition that we're human i mean you use the word evolution in your introduction and the, the that recognition of our humanity is i think our connection to the divine so that when i really mess up and I'm like oh there I am again that's when I really connect with my heart not when I'm like thinking about having a good heart or imagining that I have a good heart but when that I really feel kind of maybe heart broken open and vulnerable do I connect with what really is on the level of, um, you know, moving from my uh, the 18 inches from my head to my heart? So, right. yeah, I think vulnerability is, is a key element. <laughs> well, the, the, the notion of, you know, so you're born and when we're born nobody has an ego, and then we're taught these symbols and the values of the symbols and blah, blah, blah. We fast forward into our our adult lives. And for many people, their lives are uh, busy and, and frantic. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and mindfulness is, is um, kind of a, a gateway drug to happiness or... <laughs> in, in, hmm. But but what I'm getting at is, um, if if perhaps I've run to the end of my rope, if you will, with trying mm. to make my life work by mm. by mm. manipulating this substance, mm. this this reality outside of me, mm. and I've and I've conjured up all this crap, if you will, in my psyche, yeah. uh, like yeah. road rage, because it's so evident <laughs> that right. there's an element there that wasn't there a moment before. When we're yeah. mindful, and and in that mindfulness, we have perhaps a tension 
of that wants to draw us out of the mindfulness. In other words, to, to be mm. still, I think, is something a lot of people avoid. Because, right, right, right. It's a very good point, yeah. Um, there's a saying by Sharon Salzberg, a, a leading senior um, teacher on the path, that the practice is in the return. That is, the practice of mindfulness isn't only about the stillness. It's about the fact that we have minds that wander and learning to make friends with that wandering monkey-like uh, wish to scamper around the, the trees rather than be still, that is um, the heart of the practice because eventually the monkey can become tame of its own, of its own without having to, you know, as you, were, as you were saying, make up a lot of things for the monkey that will only bring us grief when the monkey just changes its mind and disobeys. Um, so yeah, if if that if I understand you correctly, I think that's really key. Let's and so I, I encounter it like when I whenever I notice that I'm kind of fabricating some kind of conceptual realm about something rather than, you know, just experiencing it. And it's it's most obvious when it's the, the time, either when I wake up or before I go to bed, to, to practice formal, just sitting and doing nothing. And I notice my mind says, you know, you don't want to do this today. You know, you really would rather play tennis. You know, let's let's not today. And I notice why. You know, what is this? My mind is putting up barriers between me and the boundless. And, and I, I go, what is up with that? And learning, you know, not feeling like, oh, I'm a failure, I can't do this, and oh, my mind is hopeless, but just understanding that this is kind of the the, mm, the operating system we 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 not we we they've got devised with what we have. I mean, maybe we were born perfect. I don't know. And learning how to uh, understand it, to realize, to accept it, to recognize it, understand it, realize it, kind of heal some of the suffering that comes from it, and um, transform it, because that energy, all that energy of oh gee, I shoulda, woulda, coulda, or whatever, it's still energy. It's just this wasted energy, but we could use it for for the good, rather than this kind of getting in our own way. Sure. Well, I think sometimes the ego will um, avoid feeling. And, you know, the ego says, well, let's go play tennis, this mindfulness crap. Let's mm-hmm. avoid it. Mm-hmm. The, like, um, say, for example, uh, in someone's life, there's a, a few epic uh train wrecks, uh, death of a close uh, loved one, and uh, perhaps uh, another death of a family member. Right. And that persona, yeah. that, that person has to be kind of the anchor while everybody goes epileptic yeah. because they're the father figure, they're the the cornerstone of the family, whatever. And so they kind of have to suck up the real pain that they're feeling and kind of march through the events mm. and and that pain it's it's like we were talking before the show walking uh, shuffling your feet across the carpet and you build up this charge of electricity mm. and then the <laughs> ego becomes afraid of the discharge if i touch uh-huh. the walls it's like uh-huh. the ego itself is this this uh uh, construct of of energy that we've built up upon our root consciousness, and if I touch the light switch, I'll disappear, or my my sense of control will disappear, and I'll have to uh, surrender or fall into the feelings that I've avoided or pushed down. I, yep, yep, I, I wonder yep. if the resistance to mindfulness is something in that order 
<laughs> well, yeah, it's a whole mouthful. I like your analogy of electricity, by the way, <clears throat> because having heard your you know programs before, that that it's not only your own personal background, but that you use it as a uh, analogy for consciousness. And uh, are aware that consciousness is pervasive. And I think that the ego, it's kind of like the shell of the clam where it it wants to um, protect the the juicy um, meat stuff of the of the of the of the organism against tides and predators and so there's this hard shell and some things like crabs get really intelligent about it and they pluck little bits of undersea coral and ferns on their back so that they can kind of disguise themselves uh, and blend in but that when we identify with that but when we identify with our shell as the ego, that's you know that's the, the the that's what we want to get around. We want to understand. But I will add, um, it isn't about um, well. I had this electric shock, and my ego is always scared. So gee, I better get rid of my ego. No, I mean if if the if the stove is too hot, we don't want to touch it. And so we need to be able to discern. And there's this idea that, well, you know, if I got rid of my ego, then everything would be fine. I'd just throw it away, you know, like throw in the river. We have an ego, and it's very useful. It's just uh, not, it's not following it blindly, because otherwise it's, it'll it'll try to talk us out of everything like a smart lawyer will try to think that they can get us off, is one analogy I heard. So, yeah, I think it's like that. Slippery fish. <laughs> well, and like resistance, yeah, it's like, I mean, you probably can make a better analogy than me about it in terms of the electronics or the physics of what resistance is. We In the book, there's a um, section it talks about honoring the resistance. Anything that's bothering us, anything that's irritating, that becomes our teacher. We only find out what we really have to let go of by letting go and saying, oh, what am I still holding on to? And that that still withholding and holding back uh, can, you know, when we hang on too much, it can become a hang-up. <laughs> well, well, to take uh, inventory, perhaps, of what we're holding on to that we might mm-hmm. not be aware of, how would mindfulness play into that? Oh, so um, we've we've actually gapped into the second part, kind of, because I th- I think many people think of mindfulness first as the getting into stillness. Which is true. It's the, and it's a way of uh, calming and and stilling and grounding. Um, and I'll just note that it's a way of doing it by letting go of control, rather than saying, "Oh, I'm going to calm my mind. I'm going to take a deep breath, and or I'm going to do this, and then that will happen." Instead, it's just observing, say, our breath which I invite all our listeners to do while we're talking, just being aware of an in-breath, being aware of an out-breath, being present in this moment, and nothing else. And people get kind of uh, a stereotype that that's what mindfulness is. It's being in the present. But as as our conversation has already gone into, it's also about discerning and we need to be able to discern, make an inventory, write in our journal, make ourselves available for spontaneous insight um, by creating the causes and conditions of stability, calm, stillness, um, in order to be able uh, to then uh, see more clearly the nature of, oh, this is the way things are, and how how am I uh, fitting in with it, and how might I better 
um, you know, align myself. So <laughs> if I were to diagram that answer, it would probably be kind of a semicircular arrow. I hope I answered your question. Well, yeah. Um, the uh, so, so when we're taking this inventory of self, if you will, um, yeah. And, and I liked how you talked about that that uh, eighteen inches between our head and our heart. The long yeah. journey, my friend. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. When we when we look at what might not be serving us, mm-hmm. um, our our egos can be quick to suggest a course of action, perhaps. And then there's the perhaps the boldness or the bravery or the courage mm-hmm. of the heart mm-hmm. to approach it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, can can mindfulness be a vehicle as a, a, perhaps a modality of discernment about what's motivating our um, choice or our, quote, solution to what might be um, um, resistance within ourselves? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, <clears throat> so... Answering affirmatively, the, the the three words which I, by the way, love the way you parsed the words, uh, pause, breathe, smile, with kind of, you know, like rocks in a Japanese garden with plenty of space in between. Um, pause is about this question. It's about pausing. It's about taking inventory it's about being in a moment where maybe we want to push the pause button and say, do I really want to do this? It's about checking intention. And underneath intention is motivation. Um, so that, in my more broader uh, definition of mindfulness, is very much the case that we need. It's not enough to be in the now. It's sort of like rowing a boat and wondering why we're not going anywhere and seeing that it's still tied off at the dock. We need this, these senses of direction and our, where we're coming from. And so I, I call that pausing, and it's the first third of the book. Um, yeah. Well, I like how you said... Uh, uh, a step beyond intention is um, motivation, perhaps. You know, yeah, the, it's kind of bedrock. There's the idea of the monk in a cave in the Himalayas, and he's, he's been <laughs> sitting for uh, yes. exponential number of years, and poof, he's <clears throat> now glowing in the dark, and he has found <clears throat> total um, embodiment of. of Source consciousness, whatever. The the and, whole tortilla. And, and in that, <laughs> there there is stillness. There's that pause. There's that no action. That no action. And then, yeah. and then to flip that over, perhaps. And um, I like the notion of boldness of action in perhaps. Uh, uh, you would relate to when Neil, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Mm. There was so much action. There was so much motion. There was mm. so much um, energy that was exerted from um, intention because uh, they sat down and scratched their heads for a long time in thought before they ever went to pick up a tool and so mm-hmm. what what I'm what I'm curious to is certainly there's mm-hmm. the the pause of pause and breathe mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. smile that pause but can we take mindfulness into motion with this as we um move into action mm. um 
You've hit upon a point that I'd answer by inviting you and our listeners to imagine what comes to mind when you think of mindfulness. Just like you very well put, what do we think of when we think of somebody who is supremely mindful? We think of somebody with long hair in a cave on a mountaintop, right? (laughs) Rather than maybe, you know, our postman who's who's got it and still delivering the mail. Um, Action is necessary. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I got. I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. So, what do you think of when you think of mindfulness? Um, I think the two most common images are the stacked stones. You know, little flat stones that are sitting on neatly on top of each other in a little pile. Right? You've seen that, right? Sure. Yeah. And the other is uh, like dew on a on a grass blade, just sitting there reflecting the whole universe. And those are both very passive, as is the guy who's just sitting in a cave, you know, illuminating the place with his aura. Um, In the latter part of the book, if you read it, if you read it in that order, you can read them in any order. The smile part, which is about wisdom, um, shows that wisdom that is not put into action is kind of sterile. It can kind of be like a standing pool that gets kind of toxic. You know, it has to be put into action. And, uh, oh, I'll give you an example. In the book, uh, there's a simple something that people can always take away from this conversation called Study, Observe, Practice. It's a Vietnamese um, little routine. The initials are easy to remember, SOP, where... um, you know, we need to feed our head, so we study something. Maybe people are studying this this talk right now. I don't know. Or we get a we get your book, and we're reading your book. And then after we've been reading it, we need to observe it in our own life. It's not enough just to look at it on the page. We need to see it for ourselves in our own life, and then we need to see it and we need to put it in practice. Well, I see I see that Les Jensen has a point. He said on page 99, I've been writing it in my journal about it, and I can see it makes sense. But let me try it. And then by putting it into action, we find um, how intimate we are with life, that life is mirroring our mind. Our mind is mirroring the universe. And it's only by putting it into action that we can really see for ourselves um, what it means. So, um, sort of like Hamlet, you know, without action, you're kind of like uh, a Shakespearean man in tights looking at a at a skull and doing a monologue or something. <laughs> you know, right. Or the stacked stones. Well, when we when we talk about um, mindfulness, um, hmm. how does that hmm. is that uh, completely from the Eastern traditions, or is there uh-huh. a, a Western uh-huh. flavor of mindfulness? Excellent question. Um, so, the word was, I think, 1870 when they were first translating Sanskrit, and they had this saw this word. How do we translate sati? And they said mindfulness. I looked it up. The Chinese word goes before the time of the Buddha, so that's this kind of uh, classical, ancient um, practice. And 40 years ago, I think, is when it became seeded in the West by two things. Um, The Vietnamese Zen master uh, Thich Nhat Hanh uh, wrote a book called The Miracle of Mindfulness, which was originally entitled The Miracle of Awakening, but the publisher said, nah, let's make it mindfulness. So the, the, and it was a very, it's still a very popular book. And right around that time, just after, a molecular biologist named uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who'd been studying Eastern uh, spirituality, um, and encountered this word and the, and the, and this, these te- the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh about mindfulness, 
kind of this light bulb went off in his head about, wow, this could be applied in, like, Boston College at the hospital. What if we took a, a, a wing, if I got them to give me a wing where the, we've got these patients we don't know what to do with that are, like, dying or we can't diagnose them. And teach them mindfulness. Teach them about understanding their own mind and um, so forth. And uh, then we could do clinical trials about the possible efficacy. And it was an amazing result. And John Kabat-Zinn became the pioneer of bringing mindfulness to the West without referring to the Sanskrit words of Buddhism or any of that stuff, because if he had, the insurance companies would have pointed to the door. And now mindfulness is not only uh, very common in wellness and in health and in medicine uh, and in education, and now in business and the workplace, all being secular of uh, uh, forms of they will say yeah it's uh origins in buddhism and that's all they'll say they're kind of like freud was very careful not to talk about the roots of psychology that that he was teaching in jewish mysticism you know where it says the dream varies according to the interpretation say because he was jewish in vienna and there was enough anti-semitism that he was walking on thin ice Already, and similarly, this movement of mindfulness as a Western phenomenon bolstered by Western science, largely Western psychology, and the, the, the coming of that period, you know, the growing, burgeoning rise of biofeedback and neuroscience and neurocognition and understanding more and more and more uh, <clears throat> from scientific points of view. Uh, made mindfulness what it is normally when we talk about mindfulness these days, which is why I wanted to um, sort of bring it back to the roots again, to include the full, uh, kind of the whole pizza, as it were. If we're rebranding Buddhism as mindfulness, why not, you know, bring in the the intentional ethical aspect of it and the uh, wisdom tradition of non-dualism and so forth, along with this um, incredible teachings that we can access through being aware of our breath. Right. Well, um, you talk about the, you mentioned the ethical aspect. Um, um, What's going to happen when, uh, I mean, if we look at ethics or the the morality, if you will, it's it's easy to see in social and mainstream media kind of a, a, a karmic tsunami, if you will, as we churn through our shadow, through our um, the aspects of ourselves we haven't fully looked at. How do ethics and morals um, come into play when we talk about mindfulness? So back to pausing. Um, when we no longer think of ethics as um, being handed down to us, but rather something for us to uh, understand in our own life, sort of bottom-up rather than top-down, and enabling it to be part of our practice rather than something we're doing by rote, because we heard it on Sunday in a pew. Um, That makes a mindful approach to ethics, which doesn't have any any less of the um, timeless qualities of the moral foundations, like reverence for life, or generosity, or compassion, I, I'm not saying that they're that those are relative things. They aren't. They're they're anything but. But we understand them again through action, through our own personal behavior and our relation with others. Sometimes also when we see what we see in other people that we 
react to, oh, I don't like that. We're seeing something that's mirroring ourself that is, you know, thank you for the resistance, is showing us something in ourself that uh, because it responded to it, it understands it somehow that we might need to look deeper into because it's part of our shadow. Um, So I think that's sort of how, and in the book I I lay out um, how these can be uh, mindfulness trainings is one way of looking at them rather than, you know, Ten Commandments uh, and and that, that setup, which is more um, being punished if we don't do them and being rewarded if we do by something exterior rather than um, seeing for ourselves through our own uh, lived world and practicing it. Well, then how how does importance come into play with this? I mean, how would you... Hmm? If others are 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 mirrors to unresolved aspects of ourselves, perhaps, um, who's more important here, the the other or ourselves? Hmm. Well, asking what is important is the important question, and I would say um, recognizing that there is no separation is the important. Um, person there, <laughs> the one who recognizes that uh, she and I, or he and I, or they and me, or they and we, are not different. We're not separate. One is not more important than the other. One is not inferior. One is not superior. And actually, not even equal. <laughs> it's like getting over you know, inferiority complex and the superiority complex and the equality complex. It's They're all, those are conceptuals. Those are complexes. Those are mind-made um, judgments. But the recognition of, oh, gee, um, I noticed that person was doing something, the behavior, you know, like they were uh, talking really loud. And I said, well, gee, I noticed that because I forget that sometimes I talk loud, and why do I talk loud, and why does it bother me that this other person does? And not seeing them as separate, and I think that is um, just to dot an I. Um, one of the ways that um, I'm dealing with mindfulness from my background with a Vietnamese Zen teacher who comes from the background of you know surviving the French and then the American incursion in his country that um, or namely uh, not being a bench warmer about this but finding a rock to stand on whatever it is that captures our attention and um, doing whatever we feel is important in the world Um, whether it's being a caregiver and a volunteer in a hospital or voter registration this week or whatever it is. Um, doing so with a sense that the person in the in the room that we are giving care to or the person on the end of the phone that we're phone banking to is no different than us. And that we're doing this for ourselves as well as for the world um, as not being different. Um, that to me is a really important um, way of uh, uh, making an equation that answers that question. That it's it's not about them or us. It's about um, recognizing we're kind of all in this together. And whatever I want to work on has got a, an analog in the world. And whatever I'm working on in the world has got an analog in me. And uh, I'm. I'm learning from from both of them as being the same. If that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, so if if we're observing something in uh, the outside world, in society, in the collective, and 
it it draws a reaction to us. And, mm-hmm. and I guess I could go back to road rage where this this mm-hmm. impersonal trivial event fires off this emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. If we look at that, because I I mm-hmm. um I think it's a real. Uh, deep plunge into self, into our own self, to understand mm-hmm. that truly there there's there is no separation, that everything we see humanity doing to itself, no matter how brutal mm-hmm. that it is, that I mean, I guess the question would be how do you know whether you your relationship to it is healing or resolving because road rage is is this huge. I like road rage because it's such a prominent, obvious reaction. Mm. But sometimes our reaction. It's a hard subtle. one for me because I don't drive. <laughs> but I, but I know it <laughs> well, nevertheless. And I often use I often use this example less of um, being in a car and thinking that somebody cut us off, and just wanting to slam on the horn, and knowing if I slam on the horn that everybody else is going to slam on their horn and that that's road rage, when in fact the person didn't cut us off, they took a left. Right, sure. Um, but I think the... Yeah. I think the um, the way I frame this is, is about compassion. And the and we're back to the vulnerability again. Of the, you know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a heart thing, that I know where my heart is hurting, I know where I'm suffering. I know where I see something in the world of suffering that I feel for. It could be the homeless. It could be uh, opioid addiction. It could whatever it is, and that I can recognize that in my compassion for it, there's something in me, in my own heart, that identifies with it for a reason, and then um, I know. Um, when I'm feeling healed and transformed, and there's a funny catch that I don't do it to be attached to outcome. Like, I don't expect the person in the in the hospice to be healed by my being there, or even if I, you know, there's unintended consequences, you know, that that, that right. my intention may have a different impact than I thought. And then I need to be responsible that well, my intention was this, but something else came out. But that I'm do but understanding that my motivation is doing it so that I can um understand the nature of myself as being not separate. Um then with that motivation, um yeah, you you kind of are aware when healing and transforming is taking place, without a sense of like, oh, I healed something or oh, I transformed something. You're just participating in um, the healing and transformative power of love and compassion. Oh, I hope that's coherent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. Um, it's coherent to me, but I can't vouch for seven billion other people on the call planet. in. We have you. You have a number here. You can call us in. Call in. Um. The uh, so when I when I think about a personal practice, mm-hmm. I mean, how long does uh, mindfulness, awakening mindfulness, take? <laughs> Is it point of reference, point of view, or is it your whole life? So, you know, I think a lot of people today find available, you know, in the checkout stand at the magazine rack, lots and lots of very simple mindfulness practices that, you know, three simple ways to do this or that, and that they have beneficial results, and you can find... um, the, you know, you can feel the benefit, and those are all kind of, you know, kind of grab-and-go kind of things. And that when you um, try that and you feel those uh, benefits, that that can be um, a base for a deeper dive. 
And my, uh, I guess, number one um, goal with with my book is to show that it's possible to make mindfulness 24 by 7. That when I'm um, washing a dish or dishes or folding the linen or um, cleaning up after going to the bathroom or going from the elevator to the door or to the car, whatever I'm doing, I can uh, be aware of my breath, be aware of my intention, be aware of my surroundings in this different way. And that when I notice when I'm not, that I can go, I notice that I wasn't. So that it becomes 24 by 7. And it's not something that you just do, you know, on a yoga mat or on a a meditation cushion. How long does it take? So right now, I could invite everybody to take three conscious breaths. Let's do this. If you don't mind, I'll define a breath as this is the see for yourself moment. If you see anything in this you like, well, maybe this is something for you. If not, I don't know. I'm going to define a breath as an in and an out, and it's going to be uh, through the nostrils for various reasons, with the tongue and the roof of the mouth. And so that's three breaths, and then there's a little coda, and I'll say what I'm experiencing when I'm doing it. Okay? Ready? Sure. Set? Go. I'm feeling the freshness of the room as I'm breathing in, breathing out. I feel the warmth of my body in my exhale. So I'm going to do this again. It's interesting. Hmm. Breathing in, I'm feeling more of my body, my ribs and so forth expanding. Breathing out, you know, I'm feeling more bodily grounded. I'm going to do this again. Breathing in, I feel more space and spaciousness. And breathing out, I'm just completely letting go. And now as the bonus, um, still being aware of breathing, I'm going to give myself the gift of a faint smile. Or maybe a big smile and then dialing it down. But just noticing how it really feels good to be alive. They call it in French, joie de vivre, the joy of being alive. And that the smile sometimes can precede the joy rather than waiting for joy to come along so I can smile. So pausing, breathing, and smiling. We've just practiced as a 50-second meditation. (laughs) And what I offer in the book is taking those um, under the microscope, if you will, and looking at pausing. We've already paused to take a conscious breath. So we've already done the pausing and the breathing. And the smiling, um, I began at the simplest level. And uh, uh, if you go looking at it deeper and deeper, I think that smiling is kind of a universal form of communication in the universe. You know, I smile at a dog, the dog smiles back at me. I smile at a little baby. When I finally am in their wavelength, they smile at me. Um, I smile at a cloud. Oh, hello, cloud. I take a breath. I smile at the cloud. I breathe out. The cloud kind of reveals herself to me. So that this um, sense of not being separate from the universe, I find the smile is very much a a gateway as well as a scientifically proven way of producing uh, feel-good chemicals and also of putting the um, executive function of the brain online. To answer your question, how long does it take? (laughs) You know, you can do it in 50 seconds, and then maybe it's a meditation that never stopped because it never really began. We're always breathing, and it's just of 20,000 breaths per day. How many of them are we conscious of? And with formal and informal practice, we become more and more aware, more and more who we feel we were meant to be. Well... I, I like that. That has a very simple elegance to it. Ooh. The the, uh, the the way our our world is set up, we invariably find ourselves waiting at a traffic light, waiting on the bus mm-hmm. for the next stop. There's these mm-hmm. these opportunities, if you will, perhaps all through our day, uh, waiting for the coffee in the morning. 
and uh, it's in that it's in that pause, well, which is uh, probably not by coincidence the first name, the first word of the book. It's in those pauses that we can practice. I mean, like I can imagine there's plenty of people that are so busy in their day and they want to feel better and they want to get over their mm-hmm. stress, but damn it, I'm just too mm-hmm. damn busy. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and what you've just shared with us can really happen anywhere mm-hmm. at at any time throughout the whole day. So it's 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 kind of a um there's nowhere to hide. <laughs> the opportunity presents right. itself over and over and over again. I like Right. It. The universe is God's footstool. Here we are. Right. Yeah. Well, who did you write the book for? I mean, who do you see as the oh. audience for the book? Oh, well, you know, my previous book, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Buddhism, is like The Complete Idiot's Guides are pretty much for anybody, you know. Uh, it's taught in schools, and it's also for beginners. And this one was, similarly, I wanted to, you know, reevaluate mindfulness and consolidate what gains we've made and kind of respond to some of the backlash and open it out further for the same kind of mass audience that it's been appealing to without limiting it to business or education or health. It could certainly be used in any of those uh, contexts, and some some orders are already coming in from specialized, um, you know, professional areas. But it's for you know um, adepts and newcomers alike. Well, I find I find the book very enjoyable. It's uh, oh, thank you. I, I I really love how it's written. It's uh, it's a an an easy book. It's not. Um, it doesn't require a lot of you, and yet it provides. Mm. Um, a, just a constant refresh of approach, if you will, where it's it's uh, it's very eloquent in how it presents the topic of mindfulness. It's uh, I think it it's a very good read, and uh, I think you've done a really good job with it. Thank you. I liked what you said earlier about elegant simplicity. Um, I translate Chinese classical Chinese poetry, and that's one of the things that I find true about Chinese poetry. So I, <laughs> I take the compliment very deeply to be uh, elegant in simplicity. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, seventy, and I'm still learning the the hard, the, the easiest things last. <laughs> and you'd mentioned stress, by the way, if I could just comment on that, because I think it's really important in terms of mindfulness as good medicine in difficult times. Um, I was thinking about this before the show, and, um, I, you know, stress is sort of um, taken for granted. But um, when you think of, like I was saying, what's the stereotype of the meditator, the stereotype of mindfulness, the stereotype of stress, I think, is like of the person at work with too many people putting things on their desk and they have their fists on their temples and they're clenching their arms. But the reality is it's not about having too much work. It's our attitude toward our work and everything. And it's invisible. And it's an interesting phenomenon that stress is not about the workload. And in terms of the attitude, there's an evolutionary uh, insight that I'd love sharing, which is um, that uh, humans experience stress in our advanced you know, evolutionary state, but animals don't. The, um, did you know, the, like gazelle or the zebra, who hears the branch break behind it, and it could be a cougar. So it bounds away with great surge of adrenaline. And then it looks around, no cougar, shakes its head, shakes it off, and goes its merry way, and there's no more adrenaline. There's no more fight, flight, or fright chemistry going on. Whereas humans are still pumping the adrenaline about things that aren't present. 
They're thinking about what the boss said or what the boss is going to say or, you know, reviewing the past and rehearsing the future and getting all worried and worked up. And that is stress. And I think the times we're living in are very stressful that way. And uh, mindfulness has a very good understanding of a diagnosis, prognosis, and uh, remedy. So I did want to pull that word out, stress. And I'll add, thank you, I'll dot an I by saying, um, if a doctor, so I I use a medical example, if a doctor gives you a prescription for, you know, like the doctor says, PBS, pause, breathe, smile. Okay, you pause, breathe, smile. If you take the prescription but you don't change your lifestyle, your worldview, it's really not, you know, it's going to be kind of like a Band-Aid. You know, you also might have to look at your diet and your sleep patterns and whether you're getting exercise. So... um when I'm, you know, the way I'm talking about mindfulness, awakening mindfulness, it's a, it's a whole plan of treatment, you know, as we say, the whole person, it's holistic. Well, very nice. Yeah. You know, uh, time can fly pretty fast. We've only got a oh, few gosh. minutes left. I want to oh. make sure that our audience knows how to get your book and knows of anything else you want to share. Uh, do you give uh, speeches? Do you talk to audiences? I mean, tell tell us about y- your book. All of the above. Guilty as charged. All of the above. It's very simple to find me. Um, it's my name at, with a dot com. I'm, it's G-A-R-Y-G-A-C-H dot com. That's how you can find out about my book if you want to reach me to... Um, have a consultation or give a talk on a panel or a speech in a keynote or or offer something to your uh, Kiwanis club or your workplace. Uh, this is what I do. <laughs> the book is a, um artifact of, of that. I'm so humbly grateful for your encouragement and support, Les. Um, Honestly, very easy, very easy to give. Uh, Gary, I want to thank you for being our guest. It's been a delight talking to you yep. about your book, Pause, Breathe, yep. Smile. Thank you for being our guest tonight. Thank you for having me, Wes. It's been a, a delight, a pleasure, and just divine. We've been talking with Gary Gock, and the topic tonight has been mindfulness. Good Medicine in Confounding Times. You know, it's a curious thing. I I have this, one of my most favorite books that I've never read is this really thick book on mythology. I don't read it, and I stare at it, and I think that um, I've browsed through it, and I see that each page, each chapter is this whole different paradigm of how people related to, quote, reality. And not once did some glowing orb come down from the heavens and reach over humanity's shoulder to straighten out the odds, to, to, to clear the path. It was always through flesh and bones that our human um, paradigm changed. And I find it curious that every single one of us has our own unique attributes, our own unique desires, our own unique passions. And it's through us, the individual, the human being, that humanity will uh, steady the ship, that will ride the storm, if you will. And that includes you, and that includes me. We've been talking about mindfulness tonight. And mindfulness is, I suggest you, it's a very powerful tool because you're a very powerful potential You're a potential of human consciousness. You're a potential of inspiration. You're a potential of action. And when you show up for yourself in your own authentic way, you can feel satisfied by honoring who you are. And when you feel satisfied and fulfilled, it it makes peace and satisfaction Uh, easier to embody for yourself. And that's what a lot of people on this planet are searching for is a sense of peace and fulfillment. 
fulfillment. Hey, you know, I'm your host, Les Jansen. It's always a pleasure bringing you episodes. Thanks for joining us tonight. Until next time. This has been a New Human Living radio broadcast. You can raise your own personal power with Personal Power Fundamentals Home Study Course at newhumanliving.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.